we resume our studies in Paul's epistle to the Romans, and incidentally we are meeting together to study this great epistle for the 100th time this evening. And we find ourselves now in chapter 6, beginning a consideration of verses 12, 13, and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, here in beginning to look at this twelfth verse, we come, in a sense, to a new section, at any rate, a new subsection of the argument which the Apostle is dealing with in this sixth chapter. We come to the application, in a practical manner, of the argument that the Apostle had been working out in the first 11 verses. Let us therefore not lose sight of the fact that he is still dealing with this false charge that is brought against his teaching and which he has mentioned in the first verse. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's still refuting that and showing how actually the effect of his teaching, when it is properly understood, is the exact opposite of that. Now, he's been showing it in a purely doctrinal manner, and he proceeds at this stage to work it out along a more practical line. In verse 12, he puts this practical teaching in general. In verse 13, he puts it a little bit more in detail. And then in verse 14, he again reminds us of the one great source of encouragement and of stimulus to us in our effort and endeavor to put into daily practice the great principles that he has been outlining. That is our analysis of this. You may remember that in starting with chapter 6, we analyzed the whole of the chapter and showed that it was divided into two sections, the first section running from verse 1 to verse 14, and the second section, verse 15, to the end of the chapter, but that we could subdivide the first section into verses 1 to 11, and then verses 12, 13, and 14. And here we are now with this practical section where he is applying the great teaching. And you notice that he introduces it by this word, therefore. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. There is, in a sense, no more important word in the writings of this apostle than the word, therefore. And if we haven't learned to watch him when he uses the word, therefore, we are indeed very ignorant of his method. He had an essentially logical mind. He always builds up a case. He doesn't make statements at random. But he always proceeds from one thing to another, and his connecting link is generally this all-important word, 
therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Very well then, let us look at some of the vitally important matters which he introduces in this particular instance by the use of the word therefore. Here is the first. Doctrine is always something that is to be applied. It is never to be considered as something in and of itself. There is a statement, of course, that we could elaborate at great length very easily. Christian people can be divided into two main groups, speaking very generally. The commonest group, the largest group today, is the group that is not interested in doctrine at all. It's simply interested in practical matters. The second group, a much smaller one, is the group that is only interested in doctrine and tends not to be interested at all in practical matters. Now, both, of course, are entirely wrong. I say that I'm speaking generally. But what this word reminds us of this evening is this, that however much we may have been interested in the great argument and in the mighty doctrines that we have met in verses 1 to 11, they will be of no value to us at all unless we put them into practice. It is as dangerous to take a purely detached intellectual, theoretical, academic interest in doctrines and to stop at that as it is not to be interested in doctrine at all. Constantly we are warned in the scriptures against both these extremes, but we are warned very specially about this, and if we do have a knowledge of doctrine, well, our, uh, our responsibility is correspondingly greater. If, said our blessed Lord himself, if ye know these things, Happy are ye if ye do them. It will be of no avail for us in the day of judgment to say that we understood all doctrine or had all knowledge, as the apostle puts it in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, if it has not had a vital effect upon our whole life and conduct and behavior. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There it is. Here I've been giving you all this great doctrine, he says, Therefore, let us never lose sight of that. It's a terrible possibility, a dangerous possibility. What is there to some people that is more fascinating than Christian doctrine? It can become an intellectual hobby. It can be something that can delight the mind without touching the practice and the conduct. That is, according to the Apostle, the most direct way to bring his great teaching into disrepute because it plays into the hands of this very enemy whom he is refuting. The man who says, doesn't matter very much what we do now that we are Christians and as long as we are under grace. So there is our first deduction. The second is this. As this practical section is the outcome of and the deduction from what has gone before, what is stated in this practical section therefore becomes a very valuable check on our interpretation of the previous section. I think that follows of necessity, doesn't it? This we are going to look at now is the outcome of that in verses 1 to 11. Very well. 
what we find here must correspond to what we said there. And very often it does emerge that a consideration of the practical section indicates perhaps a defect in our exposition of the more theoretical section. If we find that, it means that we were wrong in our interpretation of the theoretical section. The two things must go together, they must correspond, and they must work in the same direction. And therefore, it, we shall see as we proceed that our previous interpretation was correct when we rejected totally any exposition of the first 11 verses which would teach sinless perfection or say that a Christian can ever be in a position in which he has nothing whatsoever to do with sin. Now that needs modification and we shall proceed to give it. But at any rate I say we've seen enough already by the mere statement of the verse to see that sinless perfection has not been taught in verses 1 to 11. But let me go on to a third principle, which is this. What does this section tell us about ourselves as Christians in our relationship to sin? Now that's the important matter. We've already been looking at that, of course, in the first section, verses 1 to 11. But here again it is put in a very explicit and in a very plain manner. And this, as I've been saying, will help us to see whether or not our interpretation has already been right. You notice, therefore, that the Apostle seems to draw a distinction here between us and our mortal body. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, you and your mortal body. There is a distinction, clearly, between these two things. I'm going to emphasize in a, mo in a moment that he does not say, let not sin reign in you. What he says is, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Very well. Now, that reminds us of something that we've already seen. We were considering verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now then, we are coming back to that notion. And do you remember that we interpreted the body of sin as meaning sin as it remains in our bodies, as distinct from us ourselves as personalities and as beings. And here it is once more. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. We must again look at the terms. Body really means what it says. It means literally our physical body. It does not mean our sinful nature. Now even the great John Calvin went astray at that point and interprets it as sinful nature. Uh, you see, but it doesn't mean that the apostle really is talking about the body, not about our souls, because he says mortal body. And then that in, in itself is sufficient to prove that he really does mean the physical, the literal physical body. He doesn't mean our total personality, for that is not mortal. He means this body of ours, flesh and bones and blood, what we normally mean when we use the term body. 
And what he says is that sin, he says, you mustn't let sin reign in your body. But then he adds this word, mortal. This adjective. What does he mean by this? Why does he call it your mortal body? And surely, as we've already seen in the previous exposition, there is very great significance in the use of this term. I think he means two things by it. One thing I think he means is that it's a dying body. And he says that to encourage us. Uh, You see, the teaching can be put like this, that the position we are in as Christians is only a temporary one. We ourselves have been saved, yes, but we are still in this life and in this world. And sin is still left in the body, yes, but it's not going to be forever, he says. It's only mortal. Your body is only mortal. You haven't got to face this for all eternity. No, no, this is only something temporary. This is only going to be our position and our condition as long as we are in these mortal bodies and no longer. And that's a very comforting thought, is it not, in and of itself. But I think he also has a second meaning here. And it's this. He is contrasting the mortal body with the body of our glorification that is to come. Now, take, for instance, the perfect expression of this, uh, which you have in the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for and expect the Savior, who shall change this our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to that mighty working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now there's the contrast. This, our vile body, or this, the body of our humiliation, or if you like, this, our mortal body. And he will fashion it like unto his glorious body, or if you like, the body of his glorification. Now that, I believe, is the very contrast that we've got here. The mortal body is to be contrasted with the glorified body. Again, you see, carrying this notion that as long as we are in this mortal body, we shall be bothered by sin. But there is a day coming when we shall not be bothered by sin in any respect at all. We ourselves are already delivered out of its territory and its realm. It still remains in the body. Yes, but there's a day coming when the body will be glorified and sin will be altogether finished with and left behind once and forever. The mortal body. And you notice that in all the teaching concerning the body in the scriptures, mortality and corruption are always linked together. Take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15, round about verses 50 to 54. And the apostle argues at great length, saying, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. That is why he says that those who will be left alive on the earth when the Lord returns shall be changed. And they must be changed. They cannot inherit incorruption while they're in a corruptible body. This mortal, he says, shall put on immortality. And this corrupt shall put on incorruption. In other words, mortality and corruption 
always go together. So that what the Apostle is teaching here perfectly plainly is that while we are in this mortal body, sin will remain in the body. And his whole appeal therefore is that we are not to allow it to reign in our mortal body. So let us put it positively like this. You notice that he does not say that sin must not reign in us. No, no. He can't say that because he has already told us that our old man has indeed been crucified with Christ, that he is already dead to sin. It is impossible that sin should reign in us. But what is possible is that sin should reign in our mortal body. And the apostle tells us that sin must not be allowed to reign in our mortal body. So that when he uses a phrase like this, he's doing so very deliberately. He cannot, after all, he's been arguing in verses 1-11, turn to us suddenly and say, well, therefore, in the light of all this, let not sin reign in you. Oh, no. And he doesn't say that. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You yourself have already finished with Dead indeed unto sin. Christ died unto sin once. Reckon you yourselves also likewise to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't go back on that. And the apostle doesn't go back on it. So he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Very well. There are certain obvious implications to this teaching which arise at once. Let me just pull them out as principles so that we may have this clearly in our minds. The first is, as I've already been saying, sin still remains and is left in our bodies. Not in us, but in our bodies. We as such have already finished with it. But the body hasn't. This body of sin, this body which sin still inhabits and which it tries to, to use, there is the first principle, still remains and is left in our bodies. Secondly, sin not only remains in our bodies, but if it isn't checked, if it isn't kept down, if it isn't kept in order, it will even reign in our bodies and it will even dominate over our bodies. Now we must be perfectly clear about this teaching. Not in me, but in my body. So the apostle tells us that sin, while we are left in this mortal body, will be always seeking to dominate our bodies and to dominate us through the body. The way in which it does so, he says, is this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that's exactly what sin does, of course. What sin does is to turn the natural instincts of the body into lusts. The instincts are perfectly all right. We must be clear about that. There's nothing sinful in the natural instincts. Ah, but sin tries to turn the natural instincts into inordinate affections, into lusts. 
And what he is asserting here is that while we are left in this mortal body, that sin will go on doing that. And it will try to trap us, it will try to dominate over the body, and we mustn't allow it to do that. All along, it will be trying to do that. But we must restrain it. We must resist it. We must fight it. Therefore, there is nothing which is more fatal in exposition. Nothing which is quite so wrong as an interpretation of verse 11. As to regard it as something which says this to us, and it has often been put like this. We are told that verse 11 means that we are to reckon that sin is dead to us. But that is the exact opposite of what the apostle is saying. He never says that sin is dead. What he does say is that we are dead to sin. He doesn't say that sin is dead. Indeed, he says the opposite. He says sin is not only dead, it's still in your mortal body. And if you don't realize that and deal with it, it will reign in your mortal body. His whole appeal insists upon that interpretation. Sin isn't dead. Sin is very much alive. Sin is not eradicated out of us. And it never will be as long as we are in this mortal body. We must hold on to this word mortal because it, it is synonymous almost with corrupt. And here it is in our bodies and it's always striving for mastery and for control in the Christian, in the believer. It can never dominate over him again but it's always trying to dominate his body and it may dominate his body. And when it does, that is what we call backsliding. And it is only the believer, the true Christian, who is capable of backsliding. Very well then, here are some of the implications of this extraordinary statement. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It's there. It'll always be trying to control and master and reign. And you've always got to remember that. Now, it is because of this truth that we have so many statements in the Scripture about this body of ours and our relationship to it and the relationship of sin to it. For instance, we shall see in verse 19 in this chapter, he puts it like this. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members members mean meaning parts of the body, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness and to holiness. There it is again. And of course when we get to chapter 7 it will be still more plain. Take verse 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Or take it if you like in verse 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Or take it in verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Always, you see, in the body. And so verse 24. O wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? All those statements are in line with this statement in the 12th verse. 
And you remember I've indicated several times that you've got the same thing in chapter 8, in verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. And it means literal, physical body. That's the waiting for the glorification of the body. You'll get exactly the same thing in chapter 12 in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You'll find the same teaching exactly in 1 Corinthians 6.13, in 1 Corinthians 9.27, where he says, I keep under my body. And he means his body physically. I keep under my body, lest having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He says, I buffet my body. I hit, I bruise my body. I pummel my body. I keep under my body. Because that is the place in which sin is still resident. Not in me, but in my body. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now this is in many ways the whole key to the understanding of this teaching as it is the key to the understanding of the whole doctrine of sanctification. And it is because this has not become clear to people that there is so much confusion over this question of sanctification and especially in this sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Is it clear then? I myself am dead indeed unto sin. I have nothing more to do with it, and it has nothing more to do with me. I have finished with it as such, I myself. But it's here still in my body. It's in my mortal body. And it will worry me, and I shall have to deal with it, as long as I am in the mortal body. Thank God I know the whole time that it can never get me back under, under its dominion. Never again can it master me. Never again can it ruin my soul. Impossible. All it can do is to worry me in the body. It cannot affect my salvation. It cannot affect my final destiny. No, no. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Yes, but in the meantime, it will go on worrying you. Don't let it master you, he says. Don't let it reign over your mortal body. And therefore my third deduction is this, that it need not do so. His very exhortation to us not to allow it to do so means that it need not happen of necessity. Very well. There then we finish our third great principle, which was that this verse tells us all about ourselves as Christians in our relationship to sin. And now, therefore, we can come on to the fourth main principle, which is this. The word, therefore, introduces us to the New Testament doctrine of holiness and of sanctification. Here it brings us, I say, face to face with the New Testament, which is, therefore, the only scriptural teaching concerning holiness and sanctification.
And this is clearly and obviously a very crucial matter. What does it tell us? Let me again extract the principles. Here's our verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. What is the first principle in the New Testament doctrine of sanctification? It is obviously this. That this is something that you and I have to do. It is an exhortation that is addressed to us. Let not, don't allow sin to reign in your mortal body. From which I deduce this. That sanctification is not a gift to be received. And this can never be stated too frequently. Sanctification is not a gift to be received. There are so many who teach that. They say, you've received your justification already by faith. Now then, come along and receive your sanctification by faith. But sanctification is not a gift to be received. Here we are face to face with an exhortation. Secondly, sanctification is not a sudden experience of deliverance once and forever. It cannot be. Because sin is going to remain in the body as long as it is mortal. And as long as sin remains in my body, I shall never have an experience of a sudden deliverance once and forever from sin. I know large numbers of Christian people who spend a life of misery because they're seeking that. They believe it's possible. They've been taught that it's possible. That in one act they can be entirely rid of sin finally and completely. And they're seeking it. They're longing for it, trying to get it, and they never seem to get it. And they feel discouraged. And some of them even wonder whether they're Christians at all. It's entirely because they've not understood this chapter. Sin remains in the mortal body and will remain in the body as long as it is mortal. And therefore we shall never be rid from it in that sense. It'll go on worrying and we've always got this fight. There is no such thing as a sudden experience of complete deliverance from sin once and forever. Again, I would say that the New Testament method of teaching sanctification and holiness is not a constant appeal to us to surrender. You are familiar with that teaching. We are always being told and appealed to to surrender and to be willing to be made willing. You are familiar with the phrase, aren't you? They say, uh, are you willing to be delivered from sin and to be kept in a sanctified and holy state. Well, you say, I'm not sure. Well, they say, well, then are you willing to be made willing? And you're asked to surrender in order that you may be made willing to be made willing. But that is not the teaching here. No. Or, again, let me give you another negative. The New Testament teaching about sanctification is not just an appeal to us to look to the law. Or, as it is sometimes put, uh, allow him to live his life in you. They say, that's your trouble. You are, you are struggling. You are fighting against sin. And, of course, you're defeated, and that's why you go wrong. They say, but you're so wrong in all that. You've got nothing to do but to surrender and to look to the Lord. Allow him to live his life in you, and he'll give you victory, and he'll keep you victorious, and you'll have no more trouble. Isn't that the teaching? The prevailing, the common teaching. 
Well, all I ask is this. How do you reconcile that teaching with this? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's addressed to you. That's addressed to me. Don't allow sin to reign in your mortal body. That's the, that's the exhortation. It's an admonition. Isn't it clear that all this other teaching is unscriptural? It bypasses these scriptures. Indeed, it ignores this scriptural teaching. It makes the second half of most of these epistles entirely unnecessary. Because it tells us, you've got nothing else to do but just to realize that you must stop struggling. You must allow the Lord to live his victorious life in you and all will be well. But the, here we are given these practical exhortations. And we shall go on to find him putting it in actual detail as he does in other epistles. He tells the Ephesians not to steal anymore. And not to use foolish talking and jesting. Not to lie to one another. He's telling them not to do it. And yet this other teaching dismisses all that. And says, we've got nothing to do but to be made willing to be made willing and to allow the Lord to live his life in us and all is well. But this is addressed to us. And obviously it's addressed to us because of the doctrine which he's been elaborating in the first 11 verses. Very well then, what is the teaching? Well, it is, I say, a direct exhortation and admonition urging upon us not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. But how do you reconcile all that, says someone, with what you've been telling us in the previous verses, that because we are under grace and not under law and not under the, and not under the power of sin, that our sanctification is absolutely guaranteed that God is going to do it. Verse 14 repeats it. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Well, because you're not under the law, but are under grace. Grace is working this. You've been emphasizing that. How do you reconcile that with what you're saying now? Well, it seems to me the reconciliation is quite simple. God does this in us, through us. This is his way of doing it. Go again to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for, because, it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. Of course it is God's work, but this is God's way of doing it. God doesn't do it by telling us to do nothing and just to look to the Lord. Oh no, God tells us to do it in this way. Now this is the New Testament method of sanctification. Well, what is it? Well, here it is, my second principle. It is something that we have to do by drawing deductions from the doctrine we've already considered. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Now, this is what we've got to do. We've got to use this therefore. We've got to make certain deductions. We've got to see that certain things are inevitable from the doctrine that he's already been laying down. So that I come in my third principle to the actual practical details. Do you long to be holy? Do you long to have victory over sin in your mortal body? How do you do it? This is how you do it. First, understand the doctrine. You can't work out the therefore unless you're clear about the doctrine. 
Have you really understood verses 1 to 11? Have you understood what it means by saying that sin cannot, that you cannot continue in sin, that grace may abound because you're already dead to sin? Have you understood that you really have, your old man has been crucified with Christ? Do you know what it means to reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin as Christ is dead unto sin? Understand the doctrine. That's the place to start. You don't say, I'm not interested in doctrine. All I do is to look to Christ and allow him to live his life. No, no. You must understand the doctrine. Then, having understood it, you must remind yourselves of it constantly. Reckon. Go on reckoning. Keep on reckoning. Realize it. Apply it to yourself. And then, draw the inevitable deductions from it. And what are they? Well, here are some of them. If I really understand and believe that doctrine and realize what it's saying, I am bound to draw this deduction. What sort of a person ought I to be in the light of this doctrine? You can't consider the doctrine truly without drawing that deduction. Here is the truth about me that I have died with Christ. Why have I died with Christ? You're bound to ask the question. If you really understand the doctrine, you say, what is my position now? And what sort of a man ought I to be in the light of this that has happened to me? And immediately, you see, you're dealing with your sanctification. You're beginning to turn against sin as it resides in your mortal body. And in the same way, the doctrine provides us with the true motives for holiness. And what are the true motives for holiness? Well, they're not just the evil of sin. They're not just that we should be happy that comes in, but it's not the great motive. Still less should we be holy in order to make ourselves Christians. Still less should we be holy merely because we're afraid of hell and the punishment of hell. No, no. Our motives are entirely positive. Why must I not allow sin to reign in my mortal body? Well, because I am a man who claims to know what God's purpose is for me. And what is God's purpose for me? Well, God's purpose for me is this, that all the works of the devil shall be undone in me. God made me in his own image. He made me perfect. And his whole purpose in salvation is to bring me back to that. I believe that. I know that. I realize that. Well, if I do, I can't allow sin to reign in my mortal body. Here's my motive. I know what God's purpose for me is and all he's planned and all he's brought to pass. There's my grand motive, but I've got another. I know what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me. I, knowing this doctrine, believe that the second person in the Blessed Holy Trinity left the courts of heaven and came into this world and not only lived as a man, but humbled himself he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. I believe that he went to Calvary and bore my sins in his own body on the tree and suffered the agony and the indignity of it all for me. Why did he do it? That I might continue in sin? No, that he might separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. So how can I go on with it? 
These are the motives. This is the way that I become sanctified. It's because I know this, that I will not allow sin to reign in my mortal body. And therefore, you see, I go on to draw this deduction. The very honor of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ is involved in this matter of my behavior. I claim to be a child of God. I claim to be one who has been adopted into the family of God. I am of the household of God. I believe that the doctrine has taught me that. Very well then I say to myself, if I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, I'm letting down my father. I'm letting down my savior. I'm letting down the family of heaven to which I belong. I can't do that. This is how the New Testament sanctifies us. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's the truth that sanctifies. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, said our Lord to the people. This is the truth that makes us free. He tells us who we are, what we are, what has been done for us, and how the whole honor of the family is, as it were, in our hands. He doesn't just say to me, let go and let God, or do nothing but allow him to live his life in you. No, no, reason it out, it says. Work it out, therefore. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. And you see, it reminds me constantly of the wonderful position in which I am. I can say that sin shall never again have dominion over me. I shall say, I can say that death can never again have dominion over me. It had dominion over me in Adam, never again. I've been separated. I have been crucified with Christ. My old man is dead. I am already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And it's as I realize these things that I say, sin shall not reign in my mortal body. Or if you like, you can argue like this. If I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, well then I'm in an utterly contradictory position. I say I believe the gospel, I believe in Christ, in order that I may be delivered and that as the result of my belief I am in this new position and yet I go on living as if I were not in a new position. I am utterly contradictory. I am in an utterly foolish and untenable position. Not only that, if I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, it is a complete denial of everything that I claim to be looking forward to. As a Christian who understands this doctrine, I say that I know that a day is coming when Christ shall have conquered every enemy, shall return to reign, my body shall be glorified, I shall be with him and like him. I say that on the one hand, and on the other hand, I am living the old life as if I'd never heard of these things at all, and as if I hadn't believed. These are the doctrines which we are told to apply. These are the, are the deductions which we are meant to draw. But I have yet another one. Listen to this. If I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, I am then setting myself against the purpose of God in me and in my salvation. And there is no more dangerous thing that a believer can ever do than that. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And he's going to do it. 
We are under the reign of grace and nothing can stop it. I've been emphasizing that repeatedly in all the 11 verses. Very well. If I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, what am I doing? I am for the time being standing against the purpose of God in me. And what will happen? Well, I don't know what may happen to me. What the apostle says to the members of the church of Corinth is this. In 1 Corinthians 11... He says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. There were Christian people who were allowing sin to reign in their mortal bodies, and that's what's happened to them, says Paul. Some of them are very ill. Some of them are sick. And some of them have even died. Yes, says the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And if you're not enduring chastisement in any shape or form, you're not a son, you're a bastard. It is God's purpose to make us holy, and he's working in us. And if we stand against his purpose by allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies, well then I say, don't be surprised if you're chastised and chastised very severely. It may be illness, it may be accident, it may be death, it may be sorrow. God, if you belong to him, is going to bring you there. And therefore a man who allows sin to reign in his mortal body is exposing himself to the chastisement of the love of God. And is there anything more foolish, more insane, more mad than that? These are some of the deductions that we draw. And the final thing I say is this. The very exhortation in the light of the doctrine that has preceded it reminds us of what is possible to us and possible for us. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. But wait a minute, says someone. Aren't you putting me back in the position I was before I was a Christian? I'm doing nothing of the sort. I am saying let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. I know that there is nothing more futile than to turn to a natural man and to say, conquer sin, don't let it reign in your mortal body. He can't do it. He is the slave of sin. He is under the dominion of sin. He is under the reign of sin. And he is a complete slave to it. It's useless to tell him not to let it reign. It will reign. It does reign. But I'm not talking to him. I say, let not sin, therefore, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Who are you? Oh, you are the man who has died with Christ. Who has been crucified with Christ. You are the man who is alive unto God. You are the man in whom the Spirit of God is working. You are the man in whom God's great purpose has been set moving. You've got the power in you. And therefore I can exhort you because you've got the power. Therefore, the doctrine has already told you that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you are not... You were left without any excuse at all. You were not left to battle with sin just in and of yourself because you were a child of God. The Spirit of God is in you. The mind of Christ is in you. The whole operation of God is working itself out in you. And it is because of this we are not told just to let go and let God or to be passive and allow Christ to live his life in us. But instead, 
Let not sin therefore. Don't you let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You're in a position to stop it. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, roameth about seeking whom he may devour. Whom? Resist you. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And if you do that, you'll conquer him, you'll defeat him. There is no need for sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Because God is working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, there is the introduction, as it were, to the New Testament doctrine of sanctification introduced by this important and vital word. Therefore, therefore, in the light of this glorious doctrine of verses 1 to 11, in the light of all that, let not, don't allow sin to reign in your mortal body, that ye may obey it in the lusts thereof. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we again come into thy presence to thank thee and to praise thy name for this blessed truth. We thank thee for the measure and the extent to which we can confirm in our own experiences, the blessed word of thy dear Son, our Lord and Saviour, when he said, If ye continue in my word, then shall ye be my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We thank thee for the truth concerning ourselves in Christ that liberates us and sets us free and enables us to master and to keep in order the sin that still remains in our mortal body. We thank thee, O Lord, for this blessed fact and possibility, and we thank thee that we can look forward likewise to the day which is coming when this body shall no longer be mortal and corruptible, but immortal and incorruptible and glorified even as the body of his glorification. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night and throughout the remainder of this hour short uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage in this mortal body, and until the day of the adoption shall come. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.